Well, good morning, French Church. Welcome to part two of Mission Impossible Rogue Ego, where we talk about how do we live a selfless life in a selfie world. I'm Steve. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at French Church. Glad that you're here worshiping with us. Uh, good news, baby Matthew is home. Matthew and Sally and pastor, senior pastor Kevin Young are enjoying their first week home together and doing well, and we're excited about that, and we're glad you're here. Your mission, first mission this morning, should you choose to accept it, and I hope you do, I know you've been standing for a while, but would you stand again? Would you stand with me? And I want us to read together a passage of Scripture. It's, it's a significant passage of our lesson this morning. It comes out of Philippians chapter 2, and it starts in verse 5. And this is what is known as the hymn of Christ, penned by Paul so many years ago in a, a beautiful piece. And I just would like us to read it together. So if you would read with me. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Lord, I just pray that you would this morning speak to us through your word and through your servant, and it's your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. It was May 1976. Um, I was a junior in high school, and there was this girl that was a sophomore in high school, and uh, we decided I would like to take her out on a date. And that started off a three-and-a-half-year courtship, which now has been followed by 35-plus years of marriage. And, uh, oh, thank you. And I think you all agree that it's amazing Sheila has kept her sanity. <laughs> During that time, uh, and as you might know, those of you who have been in similar long-term relationships, you get to know each other pretty well. In fact, you kind of get to know how you're going to, your mate is going to respond even before you ask a question. You tend to know their likes, their dislikes. And many times you even know what they're thinking and could finish a sentence before they finish it. In fact, I know what's... I know what Sheila's thinking right now. She's thinking, why are you talking about me? And stop it. <laughs> we get to know those things. So I got to tell you, I was kind of surprised and uh, interested last Sunday when we got home and we were talking about the message and she was giving me her review. And she said, um, you know, you, you surprised me. 
And that doesn't happen very often. She says, usually I know where you're going. Usually when, when you're talking, I kind of know and get a feeling for what the next point is. But every time I thought you were going to go a different direction, a direction you went a different direction. And we talked about that for a little while. And in the end, she said, I guess in the end, I expected you to, after saying it's difficult, it's difficult, it's difficult, in the end to say, but really it's easy. And you never said that. And that's right. I got to thinking about that. You know, if living for Christ, if carrying your cross, what we talked about last week, if being crucified with Christ was easy, then everybody would be doing it. But it's not necessarily an easy task. In fact, when Jesus was uh, going around and teaching and preaching and the, the multitudes would come, the, the groupies would follow. When they were all, when the crowds got so big, there was always the time that Jesus would turn around and say, now, wait a minute, you need to count the cost. And he would say some tough things like, you got to deny or hate your mother and father and I don't have anywhere to lay my head. You want to come with me? And, and pretty soon those who were in it for the show, those who were in it for the, the fun things would fall away because it was hard and it was difficult. And I think sometimes in the church, we, 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 we trick ourselves when we say, oh, no, no, this, this mission difficult is really going to be easy because at that point we, get, we find out it's not easy and we get discouraged. And once we get discouraged, we begin to fall away. Or we we get surprised. It's not what I expected. I expected this to be, everybody told me this was going to be no problems. In fact, uh, you know, it, I, I expected it to be like when you used to go to the bank. Some of you don't remember this. You used to open an account in the bank and you not only got what they gave you, but you got great interest. You got a, a set of silverware and you got a toaster to go with it. <laughs> I thought that's what it was with Jesus. You know, you get new life and you get all these goodies to go with it. We find out sometimes it can be difficult. In fact, last week, in a brief summary, if you weren't here, just a reminder for those of you that long forgot it, we said there were three types of people. There were people that were hedonists, and these people live for pleasure. And we said there are a few people who do live for pleasure, but that's probably not most people. There's another group of people who are accommodating people. These people we termed accommodating, they are double-minded. They are people who live for self, but only up to the limits, only up to the limits of somebody else's claim on their life. I'll live for myself, but I will understand and recognize my parents' boundaries or the boundaries my school places in front of me or the places, the boundaries my employer places in front of me or society or even religion and Bible at times. But I still am double-minded because I still am self-centered. I just recognize those boundaries. And then we said, but then there's a third type of person. There's a person who is Christ-centered. Christ-centered, those who reject the claims of self altogether. What we call around here fourth chair living. I said, I am totally surrendered, totally committed, 100% sold out to serving Jesus Christ. And we talked about how that can be difficult. And we need to recognize sometimes that surrendering our lives because we have egos and because we have ourselves that we serve, that sometimes surrender can be a little hard. English writer and philosopher G.K. Chesterton says this, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And I think that's the case in so many people. So we left last week and I said we would come back and we would talk about what then does this crucified life look like? How is it that we can live a life that is not ego-driven, 
not self-driven, but selfless-driven, that is crucified with Christ, that is on the cross, and, and, and where we actually deny ourselves and our ego. But I tell you, it is not natural. May this year, uh, no, it was April, April of 2015, Sheila and I, and actually Kevin and Sally and family, had gone down to Myrtle Beach, middle of April, for our annual pastor's conference for our French church pastors. And it was a nice time to get away for about three days. It rained for all but about three hours, I think. <laughs> so it was nice. Uh, to, at least we were indoors and it didn't bother us a whole lot. But Sheila and I had taken a few days of vacation after that, and fortunately the rain stopped, and it was still chilly, cloudy, and not, not great. It's the middle of, middle of uh, April, but it was, it was 70 and partly cloudy, and, but it was cool enough that there weren't a lot of people on the beach, unless you were folks that had rented and got planted ahead of time and planned to be there. And so they would have a jacket on, and we would have a jacket, or eh, depending on how cold, and we'd take a walk on the beach. And Suddenly we see one of those planes fly by. You know those planes that have the banners behind them and advertise things? And my first thought was, why are they advertising now? Why would you... Why would you have a plane and, and put it, spend the money on the fuel and all that for middle of April, nobody's here, it's cold, and the beach is mostly deserted? But I was interested in what the plane said and what the banner said. I'm thinking, okay, maybe this is, is going to, uh, you know, what, what do they call it, a, a seafood buffet. You know, maybe this is a seafood buffet. And okay, I better watch this. Or, or, or maybe some big show. You know, they got a lot of places down there where the show's going on. They're advertising a the show. And so it's getting closer and closer, and we're both kind of wondering. And all of a sudden, we see the sign go by, and it said, Selfie Sticks, 1999. <laughs> I said, Are you serious? <laughs> selfie Sticks, 1999? You can sell enough selfie sticks? by flying this when nobody's around to justify fuel in a plane. Sheila reminded me, well, if you're going to buy a selfie stick, maybe you're going to buy a few other things. Makeup, I don't know what else you might be thinking about. A selfie stick. We're an ego-driven society. Some people might even be wondering what, what a selfie is. Well, here's a definition out of the Urban Dictionary of selfie. A selfie is a picture taken of yourself. I had nothing to do with the picture. <laughs> a selfie is a picture taken of yourself that is planned to be uploaded to Facebook, Instagram, or any other sort of social networking website. You can usually see the person's arm holding out the camera, in which case you can clearly tell that this person does not have any friends <laughs> to take pictures of them. <laughs> selfie. We are enamored with ourselves and our egos which is why it makes it so tough. But it is nothing new. This is, this is nothing new. In fact, our scriptures in Philippians chapter 2 actually starts off with Paul. And he's talking and he's saying this in verse 1. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2. There are Bibles outside of the door here for people here in the activity center. They're in the pews in front of you in the worship center. Philippians chapter 2 says this. If there, be, if there is any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship together in his spirit, are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together 
with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Paul starts off here by encouraging the church to live out their faith in unity. And he says the way you do that is by looking out not just for yourself. We all know how to do that. We're good at that. That comes natural. But do what doesn't come natural. Take an interest in others, too. This doesn't say don't interest yourself at all. You mean you still take care of yourself and groom and do the things that we do when we take care of ourselves. But it says, but you know how that is when you, when you have that desire to look good and, and you care for your body and, and you have desire for good health. Don't you want that for others? And don't you want part of the body to come together and to enjoy together what we enjoy? He says, do that. And then he goes on to verse five. He says this, you must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. I can imagine Paul as he's sitting in jail. He wrote Philippians while he was in jail. And I can see him writing, saying, boy, I really, what do I say to these folks? Okay, I, I, want, I need to tell them they, they gotta be in unity. They gotta be loving each other. They gotta be caring for each other. They have to care for each other as much as they do themselves. Now what? If I only had an example, if I only had a, something, an example that I could put in front of them. If I had a model, if I had a model that they could follow and I could see Paul sitting there and thinking, ah, dummy me. <laughs> we have that model. We have that perfect model of somebody who is living out the crucified life. We have the perfect model of someone who has carried his cross. We have that perfect model of a humble servant. And so he says this, you must have the same attitude that Jesus had. Don't just talk about it. Do it. And here's your example. Here's the test. How are you doing in following Jesus? In doing what Jesus do, does or did? 1 John 2, 6 says, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. We went around with those WWJD bracelets a number of years ago. Maybe some still have it. But Paul and John both say our example in living godly, sold out, crucified lives is Jesus Christ. He is the model for our genuine growth. So he goes on, verse 6. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He said, he was God. Make no mistake. He is God. If anyone's questioning, Paul is saying right here, he was God. And he's not saying he's no longer God. He's just saying before he came, he was God. But he did not think of equality as something to cling to. Romans 15, 3 says, Christ didn't live to please himself. He goes on, verse 7, instead he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And we appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience and died a criminal's death on the cross. He didn't give up his positions, just his privilege. 
And finally, those verses we ended with, therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Yes, indeed, Christ is Lord. Christ is Lord and he's our example. And as I look at this scripture and I see this picture, this painting, this model, if you would, of what a sold out life looks like, I see two things in this scripture that I think are really important for us this morning. And the first one is right there in verse seven. It says, instead, he gave up. He gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. The first step this morning to being living a totally committed a crucified life is to give up. Matthew 16, 24 through 25, Jesus said this, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. For me, as I think of give up, what comes after give up or at the same time of give up is to let go. Let go. Let go. What are you willing to let go of? There's a young man, he grew up in India. His name was Jazi Chaco. Jazi grew up in a Christian home. But when he grew up, it was a dysfunctional home. His father had some mental illness and was, would, would um, abuse his family. And so he was... Torn, and he actually left home at a very young age. But before he left, he got an important lesson from his grandfather. One day, his grandfather says, Hey, would you go up in the tree and would you pick some of the fruit for me and take this stick with you and put it under your arm? And so he says, Jazzy went up. He said, I went up, I climbed up, and I would try to get up. And when, as soon as I get up to a certain point and it got difficult, I would move and, and the stick would fall out. And he said he called down to his grandpa. He said, Grandpa, I can't do it. And his grandpa said, yes, remember, sometimes you have to let go. Sometimes you have to drop some things to accomplish other things. Sometimes we need to let go of things that are holding us back. Jazzy thought of that. He went to Australia, grew up there, started a business, became very profitable. Found a young woman, got married. She'd never seen the Taj Mahal. I said, I'd love to go to see the Taj Mahal for our honeymoon. So they got on the Taj Mahal. So they got on the plane, came over to India and was head of the Taj Mahal. And they bumped into a six-year-old slum boy. Some of you have seen Slumdog Millionaire. You know the kind of boy I'm talking about. This boy stole his heart. And he realized what he could have been when he was in India. Jazzy actually said, we took him for two weeks along on our honeymoon. Try that out. He began to pray and say, Lord, what are you calling me to do? God says, you need to give up. He went back to Australia and formed an organization called Impact, E-M-P-A-C-T. Look it up. The goal of Impact is to start 100,000 churches in India by 2030. To this point, they've already started 18,000 churches. They are starting three to four churches 
a week. And their goal is to start 24, excuse me, three to four churches a day, a day. Their goal is to start 24 churches every day. That's one church every hour, every day of every week, of every month, of every year until they reach their goal. But he had to sell his business. He sold his business. He put it out on the stock exchange in Australia, made a lot of money, invested it back in, and says, Lord, I give up. I give up. Another young man, Matthew 19, came to Jesus. We call him the rich young ruler. And he says, Lord, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, go do this, go do that. And he says, hey, I've done that. What more? And Jesus says, well, you know, let me put my finger on it. You need to sell all that you have and give to the poor. He said, I can't give it up. I can't give it up. What are you needing to give up in order to claim the greater Christian life, the greater walk? I think we can probably think of things that we hang on to. We're good at hanging on to things. We're good at hanging on to relationships and people. Jesus said, you got to hate your mother and father. You know, you may say, well, I'm glad. We, don't, we really don't have to do that. You know, uh, that's not a problem here. But do you know there around the world, there are people who once they claim the name of Christ will be forced to leave their mom and dad. They will be ostracized and they'll be asked to give that up. What are we willing to give up? Sometimes we're not willing to give up a whole lot. And I, sometimes I think that's, that's a shame. Um, I've asked a couple young people to come up. And if you don't come on up, Sharon and Jeremy. Every couple years, we ask our young people to go to camp. Now, go to camp sounds real fun, doesn't it? But uh, the camp they go to is called Camp Barnabas in Purdy, Missouri, right? Purdy. This camp is not a camp of fun, but it's a camp of giving up. It's a camp of um, surrendering. And so I've asked them to come and tell a little bit of their story. Now, the first thing we need to do is just so not everybody knows you, which one is Sharon and which one's Jeremy? No, okay, okay, we got that. So I, I've, I've asked them to come this morning because I told them we're talking about giving up. And I know I hear the stories of what they have to, they go through at this camp. It is a camp for um, special needs, children and older. It's a time where they can reach out and love these folks. And um, Sharon, I'll just start with you. I, what was it like? Well, it was pretty challenging and quite tiring. Um, you had to be with your camper for 23 hours of the day. We had one hour um, off in the afternoon where we could um, just rest and uh, just uh, uh, kind of just reflect on the rest of the day and how it was going. And, um, but my camper, she needed help with a lot of things. She needed help um, showering. She needed help going to the restroom. She needed help changing. And so um, that alone, just being with her and constantly um, just being a servant to her was tiring. But even though it was tiring, um, you got fulfillment from knowing that God's plan was being carried out in um, how I got the camper and Christy and got to know her and um, made a connection with her despite her being nonverbal. So. Yeah. 
Jeremy, same question. What was it, what was it like for you? Okay. Well, like Sharon said, we got 23 hours, or I mean, just an hour of free time. And 23 hours we were with our camper. And the hour we call it FOB, which is flat on your back time. <laughs> That's what it's called. And it, that hour feels like five minutes. Like it goes by so fast. But for me, it was very intense because I had my camper, but in our cabin, there were about like nine of us missionaries is what we call them, and then nine campers. So each missionary got a camper. And for me, like one of um, the other missionaries was having a lot of trouble. So with his camper, so you know, as other missionaries in the cabin, you really have to like help out your fellow missionaries. And so it was very difficult at times because you know, this camper who wasn't my camper, he kind of like grew attached of me at times because he didn't really like his missionary. So I was looking, yeah, that sounds really like selfish and stuff, but like, it like, it actually did happen. So, um, but. You just call him like you see him, right? Yeah, yeah. basically. <laughs> yeah, but so, um, it was very, kind of scary because sometimes I didn't know where my camper was and I was supposed to be watching out for him but I was hanging out with my other camper so but I mean yeah I guess yeah. that's one of the yeah. things I, <laughs> I guess well, I, Sharon you weren't that other missionary no never <laughs> could you tell us what you learned that week um well patience definitely but I think one of the major things I learned was that God doesn't see you or view you as um, by what you can do, but who he made you to be. Yeah. Okay. Jeremy, what'd you learn? Um, I really learned patience too, but I also learned like who Jesus really was and, and how Christ gave up himself. Like this week was really, I think, the first time that I've ever experienced, like for me, giving up giving up my all for someone else. Like it was very moving, I'm very life-changing for me altogether. It was just, it really wowed me. I mean, the experience is just undescribable, so. I, I don't, didn't get the exact facts, but as I recall, wasn't, wasn't there something like 30, 37, 40, how many people, kids went and, and everybody, somewhere around so, there? Our church, 36. 34. 34. Okay, so 34. So what I'd like you to do is, I know these two are up here, but would you give a hand to all 34 who went and was part of that? So thanks. So, you know, I don't know, you, you get a, just a glimpse of what it is to give up. I don't know, I don't know what it, for them it was time, it was comfort. Um, for some, it's going to be money. For some, it's going to be friends. Um, it, it could have been money. They could have been out earning, uh, working during that time. But the story of not being able to hang on to everything, some things we're going to have to give up. What's caught, my question, I guess, for you this morning now is what are you holding on to? What are you holding on to that God says give up? What is it in your life that says, if you want to follow me, if you want to be like me, follow my example, I gave up. I gave up the privileges of being God. 
I give up those privileges to come for you. What are you willing to give up? That's the first step in being crucified. That's the first step is give up. But there's another step and another very important thing that I see here. The second critical step is this in verse eight. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Christ's attitude was just what he said when he was hanging just before the cross, Luke twenty two forty two. not my will, but thine be done. As I look at this, I see the key to Christ and what he sacrificed, what he gave after he gave up. He suffered in humble obedience. And I would say humble obedience, let me suggest this. Humble obedience equals active submission. Because I don't want us to think that humble obedience or humility means, okay, God, just go do what you want to do. It's okay with me. Go do it. Active submission says, I will be a part of it. I will obey you in what you want to do. I was thinking about that, and I said, okay, God, if this is the case, and if we're trying to understand Christ, what did, what did you do, and, and what do you want us to do? The question is, what is Christ asking you to do? What is Christ asking you to do? I thought about that. Says, what can I think? I don't, if I, I could, if I had the time, I'd go to every one of you and say, I think God's asking you to do this. I think God's asking you to do this. Now, I don't have any clue, but I, you know, I think God's asking you to make my bed. God's asking you to feed me. God's asking you to, you know, the self comes through, you know, if, you know, take care of my needs. I don't know you particular. You're going to have to make that decision, but there are two things as I read the scriptures that I think God's asking us all to do. And the first thing I think God's asking us to do is share the gospel to share the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ still transforms lives today. When Jesus said, go into all the world, and then he turned around and says, be my witnesses everywhere in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and uttermost parts of the earth. He was giving us our calling, our call to duty to share the gospel, no matter where you are, no matter who you are. There's a broad category of what God wants us to do, and he wants us to share the gospel. Now, I don't know who he wants you to share it with. I don't know where he's going to ask you to go. But I do know this. I believe we are all called to be light and salt and share the gospel. Everybody needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus Christ came into the world and he was born as a human and he suffered and he died for us and he rose again and he's now living with the Father is a message that transforms lives. And people need to hear it and people are dying to hear it. Jim Simbola, pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle, tells this story and it's just an incredible story of a Sunday, Easter Sunday morning. And if you know the Brooklyn Tabernacle, it's many, many, many services. And, and Pastor Simbola had preached and he preached over and over and over again and he got to the end of the last sermon and he is physically and emotionally exhausted. And he sits down and he, he says... I'm glad it's over. He's sitting on the altar and he's looking around and folks are praying. He puts his head down and he's praying himself and he lifts it up. And as soon as he lifts up his head, he sees in the sixth row an obviously homeless man. And his reaction was, 
<sighs> he looked at him. They, their eyes connected. And he says, I know what he wants. I, don't, I can't deal with this now. I'm exhausted. I don't know that I can talk with anybody. But sure enough, the man gets up and he starts walking forward. Jim's looking at him and his hair is a mess. His teeth are missing. His clothes are tattered. He gets closer and he starts to smell him. And he looks at him and he says, I know this is not our policy. And I know it's not what we're supposed to do at the church. But I reach into my pocket to get my money clip. And I start getting my money clip out and I start taking it. And he says, I start to hand it to the guy. And the guy goes, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. I don't want your money. I want the Jesus you were talking about. I want this Jesus you were talking about. Immediately, Jim, like we would be, <laughs> was incredibly convicted. He said he just started bawling. Just started bawling. In fact, the man, the homeless man, had to come and comfort him. And they talked, and he says, they, he said, I want to know this Jesus. And so Jim shared with him the, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that transforms lives. And he says, your life can be transformed. He says, I need it. He says, he says what's your name? He says, my name's David. He said, how long have you been on the streets? He said, I've been there six years. He said, I know I'm on the streets. I'm going to live on the streets. I'm going to die on the streets unless something changes. Jim looked at him and says, Jesus can change your life. Well, he said that prayer. They got up and they started working with him. They got him in a halfway house. And they got him new clothes and fixed his teeth. A year later, it was time to give his testimony. One year testimony of walking with the Lord. Jim says he gets up and he starts sharing his testimony. And Jim says, I was stunned. In his words, Jim's words, he says, oh my God, this man's a preacher. This man's a preacher. Today that man is preaching on the other side of a town as an associate pastor because he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed, the gospel that can change lives that the world needs. I don't know who God is asking you. It might be a homeless person. It might be the person in our cubicle next to us. It might be the person in our office. It might be the person that lives in our home. But Jesus Christ can change lives. And the first thing Christ calls us to do is to share the gospel. It's a challenge that we take seriously, not just as individuals, but as a church. That's why we talk about world missions. That's why we talk about sharing with people who haven't heard. Because the gospel can change lives. It can change the direction of people's lives. And it can give them a hope. Not only here, but all around the world. Let me tell you another story. This is a story that I'm becoming more familiar with all the time. There was uh, countries, two countries right north of India and north, I guess, would be east. They're in Nepal and Bhutan. Nepal and Bhutan. And I, I don't know if you know much history. I knew there had been some political things going on and refugees, but I didn't know much about this story until recently. Let me really quick, really quickly sum up a long story. I'd encourage you to go home and read about it. But over the centuries, uh, folks from Nepal had migrated and had been living in Bhutan. 
In fact, over the years, sometimes it was at the invitation of the Bataan government because they needed some workers and they, they, they liked people who worked and paid taxes. And so the, the Nepalese people would come into Bataan in the 1700s, but a lot in the 1800s and even in the 1900s. But instead of, um, I guess, blending in, they kept to their, their native customs and language and they still spoke um, Nepalese. And many of them would live in the South because that's where they had been settled. And they were called Southerners. Well, in the mid-1900s, there started to be some concern in the Bhutanese government that these people, especially when they took a, a census, were, were becoming too populous and were going to overtake the country. We're going to change the face of the country. So they instituted a one-nation, one-people policy. And they said, what we want to do is we want to, we want to get, have all those who can't prove that they are true Bhutanians, that, they, that this is their homeland, that they're going to have to leave. In 1992... They forced the Southerners, those Nepali-speaking individuals, out of, Nepal, out of Bhutan and back to Nepal. Over 100,000 were forced to leave. Started in 92, went through 96. When this happened, Nepal was not real welcoming. They did not recognize these people. Some of them families have been in Bhutan for, for centuries, many for decades and said, you're not Nepalese, and you're not Bhutanese, so what are we going to do with you? So in 1992, they started setting up what we call refugee camps. Um, not real nice places to live. While Nepal and Bhutan fought over what to do with these refugees. 1992, 1993, the clock rolls, 94, 95, 96, 2000, 2001, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. It was in 2006, finally. Still no agreement between Nepal and Bhutan. But governments came together and said, we need to do something about this. And they started re-resettling these folks across nations of the world. Eight nations back in 2013, of which the United States had taken about 66,000. It just so happens that in our desire to reach out, God has sent on our, our way two of those individuals. In fact, it was a few weeks ago or months ago, Karner Tirwa, Pastor Karner Tirwa came here, and there are two Nepalese, Bhutanese Nepalese churches in the, in, in the Cleveland area. He is the pastor of those churches, senior pastor. And he came and he says, you know, the Nepalese, Bhutanese Nepalese community and now known as the Bhutanese Nepalese Churches of America, has been meeting together and, and conferencing together over these last years. It is our desire to have a youth conference for Bhutanese Nepalese young people who have come to the United States. Over the last months, we've developed a relationship. And fellas, would you come on up? It's been, it is our privilege as French Church Labor Day weekend, we are going to host the first ever Bhutanese Nepalese Youth Conference in the United States. It's a chance for people to hear. Yeah, let's, let's get that's, that's. This is Pastor Karna, Karna Tirwa. He's, he's the senior pastor, and he's, uh, he's just been a blessing to work with. I've uh, been working with also his two boys, Sanjay and Madan. Madan, and, and it's been a joy, a pleasure to work with them. And, and this is Abraham Diala. 
Yes. Is that right? Diala, I, I, and he's been so good to work with too. Uh, they are planning this conference. Uh, when we start off, I says, how many kids are going to be here? And they says, well, maybe a thousand. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> um, so one reason we wanted them up here today is because they're going to be here Labor Day weekend. And how many, I don't know how many youth are going to be here. They, they've had short notice and, and to get people here, but they've put out financial. Uh, they, they've contributed financially. Their church and their, their churches have contributed financially to make this happen. And we are so thrilled that we can help them reach their young people for Jesus Christ. And in a Three Sundays from now, Labor Day weekend, we are all going to meet down here to let them be there. But we're going to have some going back and forth. We're just excited that they're going to be here. And uh, uh, Pastor Karn, I just wondered if you would want to say a word of greeting and uh, what's, uh, anything else that's on your heart. And then we'll let Abraham share a little bit about the conference. Conference. Um, good morning, everybody. Um, I really give thanks to our almighty God who provided this opportunity. And uh, thanks, Pastor Steve, for sharing our little background. Um, so I left Bhutan when I was four years old, and I stayed in a camp as a refugee uh, for 18 years. And by the grace of God, he opened the door to come to the United States of America. And I never dreamed to come here. Um, I was without identity. Um, I was hopeless. but. I accept Christ when I was in camp um, at the age of 17. And it is um, really great honor for us to be here. Um, and I really uh, thank God for this opportunity. And so we, um, we are more than 70,000 refugees now in the United States, um, all, over, um, all over the country. Um, and then we have more than 150 to 200 Nepali-speaking small, small churches in the United States. They don't have their own building. Uh, they're renting some of them. They're doing uh, some of the churches uh, they're doing in the um, small apartments. And we, th we was uh, thinking about uh, to have a national youth conference uh, called First BNCA Youth Meet 2015. Um, the full form is Bhutanese Nepalese Christian Churches of America. And so the reason we thought it is very important is most of our high school youths, they don't go to uh, college for further study. They just, they have to go to work because they have to pay their rent, utilities bill, and all that. So we want to encourage them that, you know, for in the educational purposes, um, we will have uh, three days conference here, and uh, we'll have group discussion, uh, career counseling for IT, nursing, um, and theological studies. And our main goal for the conference um, is to, you know, give them a vision to live the life of Christ-centered, and to give, you know, uh, to play a vital role in the community. And also, to, we want to make them a missionary so they can go back to Bhutan and go back to Nepal and, you know, to reach the unreached people. And so that will be our main goal. Um, and I think that's all. Thank you so much. Just, Abraham is also on staff. You have, you're, you're, you're a preacher too. You're yes, right. I am assisting pastor. Assistant pastor. And he is a brand new American citizen. So that's Thank you. Karna, you want to... Yeah, my name is Karna. Hello, everybody. 
Uh, I served God around 16 years as a pastor in eastern part of Nepal among the refugee people. So I have, I have been here in the United States for seven years. So still I'm working as a pastor among these people. So I have to say you, today I came here to say you from my opening heart. So I have to say you, thank you very much for your love and compassion and for your great contribution to provide the place for the conference. So it is great privilege for us. So I have to say thank you, Pastor, and I have to say you thank you, everybody, Charles, friends, us family. So we need your powerful prayer in the coming days, and uh, we need you, like you people, to uh, have a together ministry to the Lord. So I have to say you again, thank you, thank you very much for your great love and your great contribution. What you are doing. Uh, to our people. Thank you. Thank you. Let me pray for you and, and for the conference uh, before you go down. And by the way, uh, because you were up early this morning and came to the first service, you got a chance to hear these guys. Uh, they got to leave at 11, so the second service, they don't get that. So, but uh, we're glad you're here. Let's pray. Lord, we just, we thank you uh, for both Karna and uh, Abraham and Lord, others that are working with them to make this conference a reality. Uh, we know, Lord, there's a lot to do, a lot of plans, and you're working. And so we just pray that everything would come together. We pray for safety and travels. We pray, Lord, that you would bless everything that is done. May it reach into the hearts and the lives of these young people who have spent so many years in, 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 in refugee camps and now have an opportunity to come and, and to grow and to learn and to hear about Jesus. And Lord, we just pray that you would just share and, and be part of this in, in, a, in, a, in a powerful way. Lord, I pray for safety. And Lord, we, just, we pray for the speakers. We pray for those classes. We pray for the fun that they have and planned. And I pray, Lord, that, that this building would just be a blessing to them and the ministry that takes place. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. Okay, thank, thank, you. You. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carson. Let's give him one more hand of... We've touched on it, but I want to, in two minutes, the closing point, because there's one other thing God calls us to do besides share, and it's to serve. It's to serve. I don't know, there are lots of ways we can be serving. God calls us again and again through his scriptures to serve. Jesus said, I have come to serve and not to be served. In fact, he told his disciples on the night that they were um, having their last supper and right before his death, he said, if you want to be first, you must be last and servant of all. One other story. What are we as a church doing to serve? Um, one of our fellow churches, Cleveland Community Friends, um, down in the Garfield Heights area, went to our, our region of French churches and, and re realized that they're a very small church and a needy church, and they had a roof that was leaking. In fact, they would have to block off half their sanctuary on Sunday morning because the roof was leaking and the water would come in. And they, and they went to and said, is there any way we could help? And so uh, we got to talking about it and the four largest churches in our northern district, us, North, Olmst or North Olmstead, um, Cornerstone in um, Chardon, or Cornerstone in Madison and Morningstar in Chardon, the four largest, have said, we will take care of that need. And this week we wrote a check for $5,000 along with the churches they put together to help them with their new roof.
Serving those who need to be served. In your bulletin, there's so many things. Program, you can see things in their areas to serve, in our kids' kingdom, in our just as I am. There are what places that can be serving. We're a needy church. We need people to help. Maybe there's somebody in your community that needs to be served. But I'll tell you this, maybe on Labor Day weekend, you'd like to come and help serve our friends. I went to the young adult class and shared with them a few weeks ago this, and they're all excited. But, you know, it's Labor Day weekend, and, and so we don't want to put too much on anybody. So if we could divide up the responsibilities, helping, help them clean the place and just, and just be a servant to them while they're here, that would be great. We're excited. They're going to be here from Saturday afternoon till Monday night on Labor Day weekend with these young people. And God's going to bless. So my two questions, what are you holding on to? And what is Christ asking you to do? What are you holding on to? And what is Christ asking you to do? Oh, oh, one more question. What's stopping you? What is stopping you? What is stopping us from living the Christ-centered life? What's stopping us from living a life that is dedicated and been crucified with Christ? What's stopping you? Let go. Let go. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning. We thank you for these testimonies that we've heard, for these, for these those shared with us. We're excited about what God is, what you're doing and what, what you're doing in our church and through our young people. And Lord, I pray that as we consider the words this morning, that we could become excited, Lord, about what you're going to do through us, through me individually. Lord, help me to lay down what needs to be laid down. Lord, help me to obey and do what needs to be done to follow you. Help me, Lord, to be your servant to those around me. Lord, I pray that prayer for us all this morning. I pray, pray that we could be a lighthouse that just shines across this community like never before. And that through it all, Jesus Christ would be lifted up. And men, women, children would be drawn to you. Lives changed, much like David, that young homeless man. Their lives would be changed. Preachers would be found. Followers of Christ would be developed. And you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.